It's a pretty important Sunday for us as a church family. I want to actually open us uh, this morning with prayer because this is the final week that um, our location and their banner location are going to be separate. Next week, we're going to be welcoming our brothers and sisters to be uh, with us as one big family at the Champagne location, which hasn't been the case for over six years. And they are currently right now in the middle of their service of celebration of sharing stories um, which is going to be a, bring a lot of joy, but also it's going to be hard. So I want to just join them, uh, uh, pray for them right now. So if you would join me right now, I want to pray for our brothers and sisters. Jesus, we are so uh, grateful for who you are, for who, what you've done for us. We thank you for um, the story uh, that you have written, the story you're continuing to write uh, through this church. And, and right now, we just ask that your spirit would be... Um, extra present uh, in Urbana at the Urbana location with everyone there. I pray that um, you would help them to come face to face with uh, the joys and the celebrations and the things that you have done, but also face to face with whatever they're feeling as far as letting go um, the season that is coming to an end. And so I pray that you would bless their time together, that you would um, bless just all the different pieces and the people um, that you'd be preparing uh, the way for them to, to join us next week. And so just be near to them, comfort, uh, bring joy, whatever is needed, uh, Lord, we ask that you would do it over there. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, um, kind of with that in mind, this message today has changed a bit. We were going to talk about stories they're celebrating over there, but I really felt like we needed to dive into something a little bit different because uh, with us coming together next week, I want us to learn how to make room for others um, in our lives and in this church. And so that's kind of what um, I want you to keep that in mind, that we're coming together um, as we dive in uh, this morning. It's estimated that the average human will walk over 100,000 miles over the course of their lifetime. Uh, that's pretty crazy. Probably uh, longer for those in developing countries that have uh, less access to uh, vehicles and that kind of thing. And, and maybe unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, less for us in the West that, that uh, you know, live lifestyles uh, that don't include a lot of activity. But 100,000 miles, that's a, that's a ton for a, a little bit of context. That's uh, four trips around the globe. It's halfway to the moon, and that's how much that we would walk over the course of our lifetime. And walking is something that for many of us and humans throughout history has been pretty special, whether it's walking alongside people we love, being out in nature, or, or even for, for those of us who are religious, which is us hopefully in this room, going on these things called pilgrimages to holy sites. And one of the most common popular ones right now is what's known as the Camino de Santiago, which is uh, varying lengths, but it's up to 500 miles from, from France to Spain, walking the path that was taken. The, the tradition says that the apostle James took to his final uh, resting place in Spain. And people will do this. Uh, it's been 40 days on this spiritual pilgrimage. And, and my wife and I, we would love, this is on our bucket list, we would love to be able to do something like that someday. But what is it that makes humans to, to do something like that or to go, for, for, for the Muslims, to go on a Hajj to, to Mecca or, or the other religions? What makes us spend time on the road together walking in, in, towards a certain destination? What, what, what drives us to do these kinds of things in life? I think there's at least two things we can say. We love checking a box and saying, hey, I, I've been there, I've done that. 
in, in the, the culture of travel that we live in today, but, but two, I think that journeys bring us closer to someone or something. When we walk the, the pilgrimage uh, together with others, we get closer to them, we get closer to God. When we, when we go hiking in nature, we, we, we sense a closeness to something bigger than ourselves. And so this morning, I want us to wrestle through the question, who are you walking with in this season of life? Who are you walking with in your life? And we've spent the last two weeks preparing to come together as one big family. Next week, we, we've pressed pause on our series on Corinthians, and we, we started two weeks ago by looking at defining moments, which is what we're in. Last week, we talked about the seasons of life and how to navigate those with God, and, and today we're kind of doing a part two of last week. We're going to be in Luke 24, in Luke 24. So if you want to turn with me to that uh, that chapter of scripture, we're going to spend some time with two disciples of Jesus in addition to Jesus himself. And we're going to talk about how can we make space for others, make room for others in the middle of our journeys. So it really is a continuation of last week where we talked about everyone's in a season and we're called to lean into those seasons. And so as we begin to ask that question, how to make room, we dive into Luke 24, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them, disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So two disciples to set the stage, going from Jerusalem, talking about everything that had happened. To kind of put a, a timeline on this, these are two disciples walking from Jerusalem after Jesus had, had died on the cross, and then three days later, the women had been to the tomb, and they'd say, hey, it's empty. And angels had said that he is risen. But this is a kind of crazy thing for any human being to believe. And so no one had seen Jesus yet. And, and these two ordinary followers of Jesus, they're walking back to their homes, um, probably downcast and discouraged because they were likely in, in, in the midst of people who didn't believe what the women had said. They didn't believe that Jesus was truly risen. They probably thought someone had stolen the body like many, like the, the leaders were, were, were claiming. They had given up and they were going home. And so we pick up in verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus, in the midst of their journey home, in their defeat and their downcast and looking down, this, this guy comes alongside and they are kept from recognizing Jesus. But, but we are reminded in this moment that in these disciples' journeys as well as in ours, Jesus meets us in our journeys. Jesus meets us in our journeys. But one of the, the hard things that we don't necessarily like that these disciples are, are soon to learn is that they, they failed to recognize him. They could not see who he was when he showed up. And we're not given any reason necessarily why. Why did these two disciples who had probably walked with him for a while not recognize him? Perhaps Jesus didn't want them to know who he was. Maybe it was getting darker over the course of the day. Perhaps resurrected Jesus had no beard and had shaved his head. Who, who knows what it was, but they could not tell who Jesus was. But maybe it's because they couldn't recognize him because they were expecting him to show up in a different kind of way. 
You see, Jesus meets us in our journeys, but we don't always recognize him there. Do you know whenever you are kind of, you're out in public and you, you, you run into someone and they're like, hey, how's it going? And you're like, oh my goodness, I know, and then your mind is like, I, I know this person. I've seen this person. I've interacted with this person, but I don't know their name and I don't know where I've seen them. And, and you just like have this kind of freeze moment. It's like, am I going to be honest and be like, hey, I really have no idea who you are. I don't remember. Or am I going to just nod my head? Yeah, you, like I know exactly who you are. Anybody have that experience every once in a while? Yeah, it's like when you meet someone out of context, it, it, it's hard to remember who, who they are. You know, confession moment as a pastor, this happens to me all the time. And so I, it's one of those things I, I try and really work on. I try not to be the guy who just nods his head. Uh, if you ever interact with me and, I'm, and learn, learn, like I pull my phone out, um, nine times out of ten, I'm actually taking notes on your name and what you're talking about, like your job, occupation, something to help me remember who you are because in those moments I'm like, there's so many people I, I'm meeting. But we all probably have that, that experience of not recognizing someone out of context. And this is kind of the same kind of things, that we don't recognize people immediately. And I wonder how many of us have walked with Jesus for years. And at times are still kept from recognizing his presence. How many of us miss Jesus because he doesn't show up in the way we expect in the context we are expecting him in? And this is exactly what we talked about last week, the question of, of asking this practical question, where have you seen God in the last 24 hours? To start having an eye to see what God is up to and where he is at. And this is exactly what these disciples experience of this guy, Jesus is out of context. And for whatever reason, you can't recognize him, but they were not expecting him in this way. And this is where we pick up in verse 17. He, Jesus, asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? He, he knows this, obviously. They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus, playing dumb, what things? They answer, about Jesus of Nazareth. They cannot believe that he has not heard these radical events that have transpired over the last few days. It's like someone the day after 9-11 or the assassination of Kennedy or, or the day after the, the man walked on a moon. Like the, you, Someone has no idea what happened. This is the, the ultimate news flash story, even in their day, pre-digital news. You see, Jesus was a big deal. Everyone was expecting him to be the Messiah who would come in and conquer the Romans and set up a new kingdom, but he died instead. And this was the news of the day, but Jesus is like, well, what, what things? And so they go on and they explain. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. And they go on telling their story about who Jesus was, what he did, what the women experienced that morning at the tomb. And Jesus jumps in and says something that, that kind of sounds a little rude to us. He says this, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the things that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So he enters into their stories, their questions, their doubts, and he, he calls these disciples foolish, which seems harsh, but the, the words here that are used in, in the Greek, it, it's not necessarily to mean like, hey, you guys are idiots, you guys are morons. It's more of, how can you not see what's in front of you? You're not perceiving that I am with you right now, the things that I have laid out, calling attention to their failure to orient themselves around the words and example of Jesus. They were missing what was right in front of their faces. He probably with a smile on his face, man, I, how foolish you guys are, man. This is Because like, he knows, he's Jesus. And they had hoped he was the Messiah. But they failed to recognize and remember the kind of Messiah that he had said he was going to be. They were expecting someone different. But in the midst of those expectations, Jesus takes their stories, their journeys, enters into it, their expectations and understandings of him, and graciously reframes them in light of God's story. You see, Jesus stewards our stories. Jesus stewards our stories. Do you have a, a friend or a family member uh, who, who's a, a master storyteller? I have a friend, his name is Ben, and I just, I love hearing him tell stories. Actually, he was my best man in my wedding, and, and over the years, I've heard him tell countless stories. We, we met, um, uh, we were going to Kenya for a summer, and so I really got to know him there, and lots of stories to tell from there, but, but he's just the kind of guy who he can take even the smallest, inconsequential story and make it into this amazing, compelling Broadway play of a story, and you're just enraptured by his storytelling. Even when I'm a part of the story, I'm like, Ben, you tell it because you can tell it better. Do any of you guys have friends like that? Well, that's, that's what Jesus is doing here with their stories that they thought they knew that they, he is reframing and, and retelling the story that they are a, a part of in light of God's bigger story. And he is stewarding their stories here in Luke 24. And as he's doing this, He's walking, they're on the road, they're getting closer and closer to Emmaus, and these, these, these two disciples, they don't want their time with Jesus to end, and so we read on verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. So as they're walking together, as they are hearing the reframing of the story of Israel and, and everything that has happened, they're approaching home. And, and Jesus, he's just, I'm just going to keep on going. He acts like he's moving on to the next village. He joined them on the journey, but he's not going to invite himself over. And so something we can take from that this morning is that as we walk out our faith, Jesus Will never, he doesn't force himself on us. Jesus does not force himself on us. He models for us what it looks like to walk with others, to enter into their journey, to ask curious questions, to give uh, reframing responses, to, to, but he doesn't do the work of the disciples for them. He pretends like he's going to go on and he's waiting for the invitation. And they, they, they take it. They say, hey, I. Come in. It's, it's getting late. We, we want to talk more. And he, he, 
he comes into their house. They extend the same kind of kindness physically to him that he was extending spiritually to them on the road. And there's a lot of different directions that we can take this message this morning. We could be asking the question, what are your expectations of Jesus and how do they need to be reframed? What stories do you need to retell or that Jesus needs to retell? Where have you missed Jesus in your life's journeys? But we're going to this morning go in the direction of, of spending time asking this question, who are you willing to make room for in your life? Who are you willing to make room for in your life? Like Jesus who made room for the disciples' questions and stories and like the disciples who made room for Jesus physically in their homes this morning, the invitation is to make room for others. To make room for others. But, but here's the thing. Our culture is not good at this. We're not good at making space for people who are different from us, who have different opinions from us, who might be enemies, who, who are on the other side of the, the aisle. We, we are so consumed with our own world. We, we don't know how to do this. And, and we're seeing the effects of this in the digital age. I've shared some of these stats before, but I think they're really important this morning. Two out of five Americans, two out of five of us, have no close friends or confidants. It's the latest studies. Two out of five people in this room have no close friends or confidants in their life. One out of every three of us, so a third of this room, are chronically lonely. And this has increased in the last few decades. Two out of five have no close friends, and, and, and one out of three Americans are chronically Lonely. We in the church are not immune to the currents of culture. How many of us in this room, if, if I had show of hands, would say that you experience regular loneliness? How many of you in this room could say, I, I don't have anyone who knows me in the deepest ways, that I don't have close friends or confidants who can walk alongside me, especially in my faith? How many of us are walking on the road of life with our heads down, discouraged and alone, just like the two disciples we encounter here on the road to Emmaus? You see, there is a desperate need for a Christian response to the realities of our day, the loneliness and the absence of deep friendships. What is Jesus' response to these realities? It's this thing that the Bible calls hospitality. Hospitality. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning with this practice of hospitality. It comes from words like hospital and hospice and hostel and hotel. It, it means to make space for others, making room for others in the world. And, and, and hospitality is the primary practice for a Christ follower, for an apprentice and a discipleship of Jesus to lean into, to be obedient to Jesus, to bring his presence into the world. The Greek word for hospitality is, is philozenia, and it's a combination of two different words. Uh, philo, which is where we get, you know, think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so it is love. But then xenia, which means literally the stranger. And so it means, hospitality means love of the stranger. 
which is what we just saw in this text, that this stranger came alongside and they invited him in. Love of the stranger. It's the opposite of, of xenophobia or the fear of the stranger, which in our culture is rampant everywhere. Fear of the stranger. Rosario uh, Butterfield defines hospitality as turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. I'm going to say that again. Strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. This is the invitation of the practice of hospitality as Christians, as Christ followers. It is expressing the same kind of welcome that our Heavenly Father has shown to us, to others. And we see this all over scripture. I can't comprehensively cover this, obviously, but here's a few places. Paul commands in Romans 12, 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The, the, the connotation here is to be eager to show hospitality to others, to be looking for it. Peter in 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. How? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2, continuing this pattern of how do we love? Hospitality says this, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. How? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. And that's kind of a mind-blowing, crazy idea for most of us who struggle with the idea of anything supernatural entering into our lives. Hospitality is in almost every list of requirements for pastors and leaders. That's how important it is to God. When's the last time you heard of a pastor or a leader being asked to step down or fired because they weren't hospitable? I have never heard that. We have lowered the bar of hospitality in our churches, in our cultures, in the Christian life. We need to raise the water level because it is foundational to flourishing in the kingdom of God and for the spread of the gospel. It is Rahab in the story of Joshua that we've kind of danced in and out of the last few weeks and will be in next week. She showed hospitality to the spies when God's people entered into the promised land. And it was credited to her as, 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 as righteousness. She's mentioned in the faith faith chapter of Hebrews, this, this prostitute woman who showed hospitality to strangers. It is, hospitality is what Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned for when they did not welcome the angels that God had there. It is what was shown by the good Samaritan to the man who was left on the side of the road when Jesus is defining what it means to love others as the neighbor. It is what Jesus modeled throughout his entire ministry. He made room for the little children when his disciples were frustrated that they were showing up. He made room for tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners as he ate with them and spent time with them. He made room for his greatest, the greatest enemies of the culture, and he made room for all of them and us on the cross. Hospitality is central to the Christian life and message, and it always has been. Most ancient historians of Christianity, they argue that the practice of hospitality was the primary way that the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. 
that Rome was overthrown by the love of Christ shown through the hospitality of the people, of, of living ordinary life and inviting others, making space for others in love throughout all of the Roman Empire. And in our culture today, which shares a lot of common things with, with, with Rome, it, it's, hospitality is one of the greatest witnesses that we can have for the gospel. Full stop. If you're looking for the way to preach the gospel, live a life of hospitality, making room for others. Henry Nouwen says that hospitality means primarily the, the creation of free space when the stranger can enter and become friend instead of enemy. And this is the key part. It is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. Hospitality is not, the goal is not to change people, but to make space where change can take place, where the Spirit of God can enter into the space that we make and transform hearts and lives. If we want to change the world for Jesus, one of the best places to start is by practicing hospitality. But it's hard, it's challenging, it's oftentimes inconvenient, it takes time that we don't have, it's often uncomfortable, it means having conversations with people that we don't know and that we maybe uh, we d- we're just sketched out by. But it is through this that God loves us, welcomes us in, and we're invited to meet others in that. Until we learn to make space for others, there will be no space for Jesus. And we see this as we come to the end of our text this morning, picking back up in verse 30 of Luke 24. The disciples have just invited Jesus to stay, and he comes in, and he eats with them. When he was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he walked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So Jesus comes into the house that he's been invited into, eats with them. And it is this, in this act of hospitality that he is revealed to them as Jesus. In the act of making room for someone else, Jesus makes room for them. If we want to experience the presence of God, we must welcome the presence of others. If you want to know God even more deeply in your life and you are not a person of hospitality, then that is the place you need to step into. God often waits to reveal himself until we step out and make room for others. So the question is, do you want to experience more of God and his presence in your lives this morning, this week, in this season? If you do, as we wrap up, I have three things for you. Lean in. One posture and two practical steps that you can take. And I... I will be remiss, again, reminding us that next week we're going to have an extra special and in the weeks to come an invitation to hospitality with our brothers and sisters coming over from Urbana. But the first, it's just a posture, a quick and simple, like last week, we look for God's invitations. We simply look for God's invitations. There are invitations to hospitality, to making space for others all around us. We just need to be paying attention and then being intentional. 
So who has God brought into your daily life? And what are you going to do about it? In your workspaces, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, at the restaurants, as you pass by people, are you, do you have open eyes? Are you looking up? Or are you looking down at your own stuff, at your phone, whatever it might be? Are you looking for what God has for you and for the people he wants you to make room for? And next week and in the weeks to come, who will you be looking for? How will you be looking for chances to meet people where they're at here in Champaign? And that leads, that's the posture of just looking for God's invitation in all of life. That leads us to two very practical steps. The first is be a friend. Be a friend. These are so simple. You're going to be like, wow, I can't believe how simple these are. And that's my goal. Be a friend. We already talked about how two out of five people have no close friends. If you want to practice hospitality, making space for others, you need to learn how to be a good friend to others, to walk with them. One of the most radical things you can do for Jesus is to be a good friend in today's culture. And uh, to kind of reframe this for us, friendship in the ancient world was a a virtue that was a higher calling than marriage. A lot of the the ancient philosophers would talk about friendship as the the highest, the epitome, the, the, the summit of what you could do and who you could be in the world. It was higher than marriage in the world. And and with that in mind, when Jesus says to his disciples and to us, I once called you servants and I now call you friends. It raises how radical that statement is, that God in Christ calls us his friends, and we are called to be friends to others as well. True friendship is more than just hobbies, more than just going to see movies or play games or watch sports or or, or whatever. It's making space for someone else's journey for their inner world. It's not judging. It's not fixing. It is walking faithfully with them through the good times and the hard times. Over the course of his three years in ministry, Jesus walked at least two to 3,000 miles with people, with 70 specific disciples, with 12 good friends, and with three of his closest confidants, Peter, James, And John, who are you walking with and who will you walk with? A a good friend of mine, uh, and and really just someone I look up to, a mentor, her name is is Becky, and and she has taken this challenge literally in her life. She's in a season of life where she has a ton of, of, of time, and she says she's called to the ministry of availability, and that's the way she primarily does it is she will literally go on walks with people. She goes on walks with anyone who is willing and will make space for her as she makes space for them and she she walks with them and she makes space for their journeys and their stories and in that she she is Jesus to them and she disciples them whether they realize it or not. It's what she calls her walking ministry. One of my absolute favorite quotes is from a guy named uh, John Welshant. He says, our job is to be a presence rather than a savior a companion rather than a leader, and a friend rather than a teacher. We're, we're not, I mean, there is the gift of leadership, but our primary calling is the gift of, of presence, of companionship, and to friendship. That is our first and primary calling as 
followers of Jesus. And this is the heart of hospitality, to make room for others. Be a friend. And the word companion is literally a word, a compound word that means to someone you walk alongside and eat bread with. The word pan means bread, and so the bread, they're bread fellows to walk with. And that leads us to our second incredibly practical invitation that we all have to do in order to live this life is to eat with others, to eat with others. Luke 7, 24 says that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Amen? And you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. One of the primary ways, you could argue that it is the primary way that Jesus did ministry was to eat with others. One scholar said that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either heading to a meal, at a meal, or going from a meal. The whole structure of the book is, including our passage today, is around tables. And there are two times where uh, Luke says, uh, gives descriptions for why the Son of Man came. The first is this, to seek and to save the lost. And the second is, to, is he came eating and drinking. The first, to seek and save the lost. Jesus' mission, what Jesus did. The second is how he did it. He did it around tables with other peoples. His method of mission was to eat with people. And if you're skeptical, I challenge you to read the Gospels and count how many times he's at a table with someone else and how much that centers around eating with others. Eating with others is central to the kingdom of God. It is one of the primary ways the kingdom comes on this earth. And so practically, you are already eating. Who are you going to eat with? Who new are you going to make space for this week and in the weeks to come? Maybe next week after church, you're going to run into some Urbana folks and and you're going to say, hey, would you be willing to come to lunch? I don't know you. I don't know your story. Would you come to lunch with me? Because I want to make space for you and make you feel welcome here in the family at first. Or maybe there's other spaces in your life, other people that you feel called to as you're paying attention to the invitations of God in your life. That you, Hey, I want to grab coffee with you. Would you be willing to meet? I want to grab breakfast or lunch or dinner with you. And does that mean some inconvenience and some, you know, calendaring that you might need to do? Yeah, sometimes. But it is one of the ways the kingdom comes. And it's something you already have to do anyway. Who are you going to eat with this week? So as we wrap up this morning, we come back to that. Who are you making room for in your life? Who will you show hospitality to, be friends to, eat with? If you choose to lean in, if you choose to make space for others, I can guarantee that God will make more room for his presence in your life that he will reveal himself to you in new ways. You see, God made room for us at the banquet table of the kingdom of God. And as we do every week, we participate in the act of communion, which we're going to transition into right now, of celebrating and remembering that the, the table of Jesus, where he sat at a table and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness 
of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. It is at the Lord's Supper on a Thursday night that he invites his followers to remember. And this is why we lean into this practice every week. And so for the next few minutes, you can grab the elements if you don't already have them at the entrances, the, the bread that represents his broken body, the juice that represents his shed blood. And I want you to sit and to reflect on the room that was made for you in the salvation story of Jesus Christ. But also the room that is still there for others. Who can you invite to the table? Who can you make room for in this season of life.